do remain standing and let's turn together to the sermon scripture. Uh, you'll find it this evening in 1 Timothy once again. Uh, we come tonight to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we will read uh, verses 1 through 5. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Let's give our attention now, brothers and sisters, uh, to the Word of God. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. This is indeed the word of the Lord. May he bless it to our hearing. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Again, our Father, uh, we pray with all of our hearts that you would speak now through your holy word and by your Holy Spirit to us. Comfort us with the grace of Jesus Christ that we who are truly your children shall indeed, in spite of all of our sins and failings, be kept unto glory Keep us from departing from faith, from believing false doctrines. Keep us, O oh Lord, in the sound and faithful teaching of your holy word. And may we live accordingly for your eternal glory and for our everlasting good, we ask it. For we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, uh, the report of a liberal denominations committee of ministers, academics, and health professionals made headlines in a number of newspapers. In the report, the committee assumes that sexual gratification is a human need and right that should not be limited to heterosexual spouses. According to the report, gays and lesbians are, quote, to be received and accepted as full participant members in the church and be eligible for ordination, whether celibate or not. The report included these words, homosexual love no less and no more then heterosexual love is right and good. This from the 1991 minutes of the Presbyterian Church USA. My bet 
is that it is the 1991 that jumps out at you. But what about the church part? Without anything resembling a hint of biblical justification, a body that professes to be a church of Jesus Christ claims that there is no moral distinction between homosexual and heterosexual relationships. Now I ask you, dear friend, if someone were to pick up the Bible and read it without being encumbered by the present cultural dynamic, do you think that is the conclusion that they would come to? Do you think it is the conclusion that a child reading the Bible would come to? I want to make two observations about this. First, this position has been taken by those who very much profess to be Christians and by those who are baptized members of and occupy positions of leadership in what purports to be a church of Jesus Christ. The second point is this, this situation in which we now find ourselves was very much predictable. In his work of massive importance, I referenced it this morning, Christianity and Liberalism, J. Gresham Machen predicted our situation in the 1920s and said that we had been moving in this direction for some 50 to 75 years by his time. He was able to see in the rise of the marginalization of the basic facts of the historic Christian gospel, the replacement of that gospel by a social gospel, the influence on the church by the advancement of modern technology, the growing obsession with science instead of revelation, and a multitude of other factors, the inevitable eclipse of the Christian gospel, that biblical gospel of the good news of salvation for sinners through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, indeed, the great apostasy in which we find ourselves today was prophesied, not by Machen, but two millennia ago, not by any man, but by the Holy Spirit of God. Look with me at verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The Spirit expressly says, notice, the Holy Spirit is a person, a divine person who speaks, not an impersonal force. A divine he, not an it. Second, the Holy Spirit is God. He is omniscient. He can prophesy. He knows and predicts the future. Paul's words here 
are the New Testament equivalent to the thus says the Lord, thus saith the Lord, that is so prevalent in the prophetical language of the Old Testament. And what follows, therefore, is the undoubted and very clear prophecy of the Holy Spirit. And while there is no doubt that he drew the whole of the letter from the Holy Spirit's voice, and therefore we should listen to everything always spoken by God's Spirit as communicating the will of Christ. Nevertheless, with these particular words, he draws our attention to something of great importance and gravity here revealed by the Holy Spirit. And it is this. In latter times, there will be a great apostasy. Not merely the influence of secularism, but a great apostasy, a vast departure from Christian faith on the part of many of its professors. And it is indeed very important for you, beloved, to understand that the errors to which the Spirit points our attention are not so much those secularizing influences of the unbelieving world, but those so-called deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons taught by those who depart from the true Christian faith. That is sobering, to say the least. It may be no exaggeration to say, then, that the greatest threat we Christians face are not the threats from those outside the church, from the world, but the errors taught by those who have once embraced Christianity. It is these errors, these false doctrines, that are the most deceptive, that tend to have the greatest allure, and that pose such a profound threat to the purity of our faith and practice. And a brief survey of church history bears this out. In the first century, the Judaizers erroneously taught and were vehemently opposed by the Apostle Paul that salvation comes, at least in part, by works. It was a false gospel, but professing Christians were teaching it. In the early part of the fourth century, Arius, a church leader, falsely taught that Jesus was not fully divine, but the first and greatest created being. He was opposed by young, brilliant Athanasius. Also in the fourth century, Pelagius taught that people are not fallen by original sin's stain and that they can keep the Ten Commandments by their own inherent abilities. Early in the 20th century, liberalism questioned the necessity of Christ's atonement. They questioned the very nature of its substitutionary nature, that one gave his life for the sins of another. Modernists argued that because God is love, no atonement is needed. 
In our day, universalism is on the rise. The uniqueness of Christ, salvation in him alone, the biblical sexual ethic are all under assault by those who claim to be Christians. I remember years ago, Pastor Rob Bell, you may know that name, questioned in print whether the virgin birth of Christ was really all that important to Christian faith. And he challenged his readers and his hearers to ask, is their faith so weak that it could not survive without the virgin birth? That man has now denied hell, fully embraced gay marriage, speaks on stage with Oprah Winfrey. He is obsessed with fame and the world's approval. He once pastored a church of 10,000 mostly young evangelicals who had left the Christian Reformed Church in search of something new and different. But this great apostasy of the latter times had been spoken of by the Spirit in ancient times and was therefore to be expected and taken for granted among Christians. The Spirit informed the church ahead of time that its leaders and its members might be forewarned that false teachers will come and they will cast aside the true doctrine of Christ and cast into the shadows the true worship of God. And history indeed tells us that men of every age, men of our age, have had to contend with a never-ending stream of theological error. They have had, in Jude's words, to contend earnestly for that faith once delivered to the saints. It's hard to know how to accurately describe or characterize our times. They are soft and they are squishy. Sound doctrine and serious Christian thought have fallen on hard times within evangelicalism. I agree with someone who said that our greatest threat is not hedonism, but it's distraction. We're distracted by so much we don't even take time to think seriously anymore. And some wonder about churches like ours, our little church. Why so serious about sound doctrine? Why so particular about right teaching and about biblical worship and so on? We've been well warned. And we've taken this warning to heart. False teachers will arise. The great apostasy is coming and is here. Wolves in sheep's clothing are everywhere infiltrating the church. And God has called the leaders of the church to guard the deposit of the one true gospel against the class of men described in verses 1 and 2. Notice, they have departed from the faith. They at one time were professing Christians, perhaps they still are professing. They were regarded as fellow believers. They named the name of Christ. 
They give heed to deceiving spirits. They themselves are deceived, and they deceive others. To doctrines of demons. It's strong language. Their teaching is demonic in origin. It is hell-inspired rather than heaven-inspired, rather than by the Holy Spirit. Verse 2. Further, it comes from hypocritical men who speak lies. The strong suggestion is that they know they are speaking lies, but they do it anyway. And they have had their consciences seared. What a word picture. Their consciences seared with a hot iron. Like one might sear a piece of meat on the grill. What it means, of course, is their consciences no longer function as a conscience ought to function. They do not feel in their hearts the conviction of sin and of guilt for the sins they commit. There is no sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. They are literally, as we often say, desensitized. There's no getting through. They're closed to the work of the Spirit, to a recognition of right and wrong and good and evil. They repent of nothing, confess nothing. They do not turn away from evil. Instead, they continually defend themselves. They lash out as at others in hypocritical lies, accusing others of wrongdoing, but never admitting their own. They pretend to be spiritual, but are led by the instigation of the devil. And theirs is a useless medicine. Rather than turning from their wicked ways, they paper over them. And having a bad conscience, they conceal their wounds to no spiritual advantage and to their own utter destruction. And so this is the Spirit's warning. This is the prophecy of what is to come. And this is the class of individuals he describes. And now he mentions two particular examples, namely the prohibition of marriage and of some kinds of food. Verse 3, it may seem rather surprising to you that this is such an important thing to Paul. The specific departure from Christian faith that Paul refers to involved an extreme form of asceticism. The living of a rigorous life of self-denial and the rejection of pleasure in the form of marriage and eating. Remember what he says. There will be false teachers who will come from within the church, departing from the faith by forbidding marriage and commanding the abstaining from foods. These teachings are important enough for Paul to say that those who embrace them have departed from the faith. 
rather than true holiness being found in the true worship of God through Jesus Christ, according to his holy word. These false teachers locate holiness in the denial of a wife, and therefore in the denial of sexual pleasure, and in the denial of foods, and therefore in the pleasures of the palate and of the body. There have always been those who have dreamed that true spirituality is found in the denial of the body, always dreaming that God is to be worshipped in a carnal matter, as if God were carnal, as if the things that mattered to God were the denial of foods and of marriage. Beloved, was it not God who instituted and blessed marriage for the mutual help of man and woman and for their enjoyment? Do we not read quite plainly in Genesis 2 and indeed throughout the whole Bible that God created marriage, blessed marriage, declared marriage to be good, and said that those who have found a faithful husband or wife are blessed to have found such a marriage partner for life. And did not this same God create all things for man's use and enjoyment? Go back again to our recent studies in Genesis. Plant and herb, fruit tree and vegetable, and yes, animals even, for the enjoyment and sustenance of man. You have probably heard of the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism held to a cosmic dualism. It held that all flesh and material things were inherently evil, while things of the spirit were inherently good. And the Gnostics went so far as to say that the physical world, the created order, was made by a lesser evil deity, but could not have been created by the Father of Jesus Christ. And they promised true spiritual life and wisdom through secret esoteric knowledge known to their sect alone. They pushed a life of extreme denial of anything pertaining to the body. In time, the Roman Catholic Church while not denying marriage altogether, nevertheless would teach that the highest spiritual life of holiness could be lived only by those who practiced celibacy and did not marry. Therefore, the prohibition of marriage to the priesthood in order to live the highest and holiest life to which a person can be called. Now, of course, God does call some to singleness, Singleness can be a great benefit to someone in his or her service to Christ. But please notice what Paul is describing here. Not the gift of singleness, not the possibility that God may call some to singleness, but the prohibition of marriage, forbidding to marry. And for that, one needs a certain teaching authority and the power to enforce it such as you have in the Roman Catholic Church. 
Again, the point is not that a minister might be called to celibacy and live a life of singleness, but that such a state is required and enforced by the church and considered to be the holiest life. It is compulsory, he says. They make holiness to consist in these things. They bind men's consciences by a necessity from which men's hearts ought to have been free. And it is that principle to which I want to draw your attention now, that principle of Christian freedom, of Christian liberty. Notice that on these matters, he labors so hard to drive this home in the second half of verse 3 and verses 4 and 5. Notice there, the second half of verse 3, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Those things which God has created, and this includes marriage, and this includes food, are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Here are wonderful theological insights known even to our children. God has created all things. All things created by God are to be enjoyed. They are to be received with thanksgiving. And therefore, they are not to be shunned or denied or rejected, but joyfully and thankfully received. Verse 4. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. It is a broad, sweeping, and massively important statement about God and creation and Christian liberty and receiving God's good gifts with thanksgiving. Notice the logic. Since God is the creator of all things, all things created by him are good. Nothing, therefore, is to be rejected, but it is to be received with thanksgiving. And you get a little insight, I think, here, don't you? Why there is such an important practice among Christians of bowing for prayer whenever we sit down for a meal. It's one of the most characteristic of Christian practices. We do it at church. You do it in your families. It's not as if we should not be praying or that we do not pray at other times. But there's something about eating that immediately calls to mind the fact that God is the creator, that he gives us all things to enjoy, that everything is a gift from his hand, and that it is therefore eminently appropriate to pause for a moment on these occasions when we gather for a meal to give him thanks. These are the times and activities when we eat that it is most obvious that God is our provider. And the food is a sign of that, 
a reminder of that, of his tender mercies and his graces, all to be received with thanksgiving and joy. You may know that our confession of faith in chapter 20 on Christian liberty declares in those famous words, and they were a kind of battle cry for the Reformation and the post-Reformation period, that God alone is Lord of the conscience. And I firmly believe that the Apostle Paul would have affirmed and loved these words. It was a way of saying this, that God and God alone binds the conscience and not man and not men's traditions. God and God alone can tell us what to abstain from. And he has not told us in his word to abstain from marriage, that we might live a more holy life. He has told us that we are free to receive and enjoy a spouse with thanksgiving. And he has said the same about foods. We are free. Jesus said, it is not what goes into a man, but what goes out of a man that defiles him. And the gospel writer added parenthetically, in saying this, the Lord Jesus declared all foods to be clean. In other words, nothing is off limits. Unless, like some members of our family, you just don't like how it tastes. <laughs> and then for you, I guess some things are off limits. But it is sin, Jesus is saying. Not food that makes us filthy. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. One of our favorite verses, Acts 10. No longer consider unclean, Peter, what you once considered unclean. The reference is, of course, first to foods, but ultimately to Gentiles. The gospel goes forth to all people, even to those once considered unclean by the people of God. Notice, beloved, I think this is remarkable what Paul says about those who understand this principle of Christian liberty. And so if you understand it, and if you receive it tonight, he says it about you. Verse 3, he says, Everything is to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. This is the exact opposite and placed in intentional opposition to those who are hypocritical liars, who espouse deceptive teachings and doctrines of demons. Those people, Paul says, do not believe, nor do they know the truth. And isn't it just a little bit ironic that they are the ones whom weak minds often think are the most spiritual for they tell gullible people to deny certain things and that in denying them they will find holiness. But Paul says it is those who believe and know the truth who understand Christian liberty and who receive marriage and foods as good gifts from God that should not be forbidden to any. 
Finally, he tells us in verse 5 why Christians can receive all things from God with thanksgiving. Because it, he says, is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. This is the atmosphere in which we Christians live. We live in the atmosphere of the word of God and of prayer. It's how we think. It's how we eat. It's how we drink. It's how we do all that we do when we are at our very best. Our lives are sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. Our activities, when done in faith for the glory of God, are likewise sanctified. What does it mean, dear friend? Eating food is a holy activity. It's a spiritual practice. For though it pertains to the body, when we apply the word of God and prayer to it, we find that it is in reality a profoundly spiritual activity. For we know that everything is created by God, given to us by God, and to be received with highest thanksgiving. Paul knew his Bible. Paul, like you, had read Genesis. Every creature is good. God declared them so. And when the blessed God surveyed all of his works, when God looked down and saw all that he had made, he declared, behold, it was very good. And when he brought Adam and Eve together, he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. How can the relationship upon which that is established and the activity that makes it possible be anything but pleasing in the sight of the Lord? Let us then give thanks to God for every creature. Let us remember that marriage is a blessed and holy estate that every creature is nourishing to us. Next time you sit down to eat, perhaps in a few minutes together, consider this, think on this, dwell on this. God made it all. It's all good. He gave it to us for our sustenance and our life. It is to be received with thanksgiving as a gift from his hand. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, we thank you for the warnings of your Holy Spirit given by prophecy centuries ago. And we thank you that we have them written down for us in your holy word, that we, your people, might read them, take note of them, be forewarned by them, and therefore be on guard against them. O oh, Father, we long for the day when in your glorious kingdom that is to come in its fullest consummated state, in that great day there will be no error, 
no deception, no hypocrisy, and no lie, but everything will be true and wise and sound and healthy and full of glory and grace. But you have seen fit, O Lord, in your infinite wisdom, though it is beyond our ability to fully understand why, to permit error and a certain falling away from faith in this age. But we who are your dearly loved children would beseech you, O Lord, not to let us fall. Would you keep us, would you preserve us until the very end, sound in doctrine, in faith and in practice? And would you then bring us home to glory? Keep us, we pray, for Jesus' sake.